It is so very good once again to see everyone, and uh, boy, the, the year just keeps getting stranger and stranger. You know, we're having, what, 100 and, what is it, 112 today um, in September? Every Sunday, every week, something new and interesting, right? And uh, I just want to uh, wish you happy Labor Day weekend, of course. Uh, before we dig in, a couple things I want to mention. Next Sunday, you want to make sure you're here. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it's going to be, I think, a first time for us uh, to celebrate it outside like, like this, of course. And uh, we've got uh, individually prepackaged elements. It's all going to be sanitary and safe uh, for all of us. And we, we hope you'll be here to be part of that, uh, that celebration together. I also want to make sure everybody knows um, if, if you're not giving online and you want to give here while you're on campus, we've got boxes up near the front here where you can see. And just drop your, um, your offering into that. And then there are also boxes that are towards uh, the back. And uh, just in case I see some of you sitting close to those, uh, if you're sitting close to those, you have to give double offering today. Um, just wanted to make sure you knew that. That's part of the deal. So just kidding, just kidding. So I also want you to know I brought my um, sweat rag today because I'm, I'm assuming that I'm going to be sweating quite a lot before this is all over. Um, I don't know if that says anything about the quality of the message you're about to hear, but I think it's going to happen. And I also had one other thought that I wanted to share. You know, a lot of you are having your sunglasses on, and I'm concerned about this because you could sleep during the message, and we wouldn't know. So if you discover that the person sitting next to you is sleeping with their sunglasses on and I can't see, just let me know, point them out, and we'll take care of that from up here. So. Hey, well, today we are, we are launching a brand new teaching series called Hope for Exiles, and we are going to this fall be studying the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. And uh, some of you may be asking, because I've had a few people ask me the question, why are we studying 1 Peter? And the answer, quite simply, is we need hope. Amen? We need hope. And I cannot think of a book in the Bible that is more relevant to the times that we are living through right now than 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter was written to Christians living in incredibly difficult times. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us that these people were going through fiery trials. Fiery trials. And, And we know from our historical evidence that at this moment in time when Peter wrote this letter, full-blown empire-wide persecution had not yet broken out, but it was flaring. Here and there it was flaring. And some believers were losing their jobs. Some believers were being left in poverty, not able to feed their families. Many of them were facing social ostracism from neighbors, attacking them for their unbeliefs. And yes, some of them were being killed. They needed hope. And Peter offers them hope. And their suffering, and this is what I want you to see, this is why we're calling this hope for exiles, their suffering grew from the reality that they didn't belong. As Christ's followers, they were different, and they felt the alienation, they felt the dislocation. Peter calls them exiles, and he's telling them, you need to learn to live as outsiders. And I'm telling you and us today that we are living, I believe, in a time that looks increasingly like theirs. I think we'd all agree that 2020 has been a year of fiery trials. Amen? 
It's been a year none of us wants to live through again. A worldwide pandemic has led to lockdowns, which have led to job loss and more anxiety and loneliness going through the roof. And, and all of this has just fueled the fires that were already burning of alienation and hatred and polarization all across our society. And then there are some of us, and, and maybe none of the rest of us know who you are, but some of us are facing what may be like a leading edge of per coming persecution for our faith. It's happening. We all live in a culture that is becoming more and more hostile to God and his word year after year. And, and I know some of you are being pressured to say things you don't believe. You're being pressured to agree with ideas that run counter to God's truth and your convictions. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to be talking more and more about how the pre-Christian culture of the first century shares very much in common with the post-Christian culture of the 21st century. But all of this is to say we need First Peter. We need P Peter, what Peter has to say. And, and you're going to discover that this letter has this uh, unique blend of realism and encouragement. Peter tells us to live in hope, and then he also tells us you don't belong. And so Peter is telling us, as we get started today, we're on a journey. See, as exiles who don't belong, we are sojourners, we are travelers, we are aliens, we are, we are people the world sees as strange. We are citizens of a different kingdom. And to kind of get us into what's happening in this letter and set the stage for everything that's going to come, we're going to unpack just the introduction to 1 Peter today, just the first two verses. And I want to read those uh, together. And, 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 you know, we don't do this at Southwinds like some churches do, but I'm going to do it today in honor of the reading of God's word. And because I can tell you're getting warm and drowsy, I'm going to have you stand up. Stand up for the reading of God's word, and then you can be seated. This is the word of the Lord, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin with four facts that you need to know um, uh, for our journey. Four facts that are just about this letter, setting the stage, and uh, these are not actually in the online notes, and so you can kind of put them in one of those boxes if you're doing it there. But this just gives you some information that will help frame for you some things about this letter. First of all, who's the author? And, of course, the answer is, everybody say it, Peter, the Apostle Peter. And, and, and isn't Peter a guy that you kind of cannot help but love? He's this guy that we can all relate to. Peter had a big mouth. Peter said stupid things sometimes. How many of you are sitting next to someone with a big mouth or says stupid things? <laughs> I'm starting some trouble, huh? And, and Peter was always getting himself in trouble, just like me right now. Um, you know, Peter's motto, I was thinking about this week, it seemed to always be go big or go home, right? That was Peter. And he was just this real guy. I, I think he would have liked our Southwind's value of no perfect people allowed because he wasn't like a churchy kind of person. 
And it's kind of a contrast. I don't know if you've ever thought this, but the Apostle Paul, he was this guy that was sometimes like way, way up here, right? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, he, he's, a, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He lists all of his accomplishment. Paul was the guy who went to Stanford for undergrad. He went to Princeton for a master's degree, and then he got a Ph.D. at Harvard. That was the Apostle Paul. You know, Peter, on the other hand, was like, yeah, but I know the difference between a carp and a catfish. That was Peter. Paul, he seems like the kind of guy like who would speak eight languages. And, you know, at, in his evening, he would sit around translating, you know, uh, documents from Punic and Coptic, you know, into his language. He was that kind of guy. Peter, he was the kind of guy who watched the Tiger King twice. That's Peter, right? But for all of this... Peter was the undisputed leader of the apostles. His name always comes first when Jesus' disciples are listed. Jesus gives him the name Peter, which means what? Everybody tell me. Rock. And he writes like a man with the name Rock. I mean, you're going to see that his words are like honest and blunt, always straight to the point. That's Peter. So he's the author. Now, who is the audience for this letter? Who are the recipients? Who is Peter writing to? Well, 1 Peter is what is known in the New Testament as a general letter. And that's a contrast to letters like Ephesians, which were written to a church in a particular city. A general letter is written to churches in a region. And in this case, five regions, uh, this area just for frame of reference, is, is a, a geographical area about the size of the state of California. So it's a large area. These five regions were all located in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And from what we can see, the people in these churches were a pretty diverse group of mostly Gentiles and Jews. So that's who's getting this letter. Now, when was it written? What was the date? Well, we don't know exactly when it was written, but it uh, seems reasonable to suggest that it was close to A.D. 64, and it seems that Peter is writing from Rome. There's some clues in the letter. And we know that he was imprisoned there. And we know that he would be martyred in Rome by Emperor Nero in A.D. 64. What's the purpose of the letter? That's the fourth fact. Why did Peter write this letter? Well, we find a partial answer in verse 6, which we'll study in depth next week. Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. As I mentioned, persecution across the empire had not yet broken out. But the, Peter, the, the people that Peter was writing to, they were feeling the heat, and it was starting to turn up. And so the purpose of First Peter was to prepare these Christ followers to live in a culture that was hostile to their faith. One of my uh, Ph.D. professors named Scott McKnight has written a commentary in 1 Peter, and, and he says this, The issue facing the Christians in Asia Minor was disturbingly simple. How should we live in this context of social exclusion and persecution? Should we withdraw from society? Should we turn a cold shoulder to the world? Should we denounce society in poetic and prophetic tones? How then should we Live And Peter is asking us that question as well. How should we live? How should we live? And the answer, the answer is summed up in one word that Peter uses to describe all of his Christ followers, and that's that word exiles. Exiles. That word describes our relationship to the world that we live in. 
And it doesn't matter if we live in the country of our birth or not. As followers of Jesus, we are exiles. We are temporarily isolated from our true home. We are living in a country where we don't belong. So what does this mean? What does it mean to live as exiles? Well, uh, to walk a path. What does it mean to walk a path we call a strange journey as the world sees it? Well, today... We are looking at this introduction to the letter. It's formally um, an analysis of this letter called the greeting or the salutation. And I just want to tell you, if you didn't notice it already, these opening two verses are among the most theologically rich and profound of all of the greetings found in all of the New Testament letters. Peter is packing so much incredible truth into these short sentences. And I have four truths that I want to share with you from these two verses that help us begin our strange journey. Four truths that are drawn from four words. And just to give you a heads up, and if you want to underline them in your Bible, the words are elect, sanctification, obedience, and then we'll sum it all up, tie it all together with exiles. So those four words, here's the truths. You can see these in your notes. God, number one, God has chosen us to take the journey. God's chosen us. Peter writes, elect that we are, he writes this letter to elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he starts off by calling his readers elect exiles, and he's calling us that as well. And this word, this Greek word translated elect means chosen. At its most basic level, this word elect means that the cause of your salvation is not that you have reached out and sought and found this distant God. But it is that God who is very near, he chose to reach out to you and to draw you into his family. Now, this is a term that makes some of us uncomfortable, but you need to know it is all through the Bible. We first find this concept of being chosen in the Old Testament. We learn that the nation of Israel was chosen by God, but again, it was not because of anything they had done. In fact, God calls them a stubborn, arrogant people. He says, you're the smallest of all the nations. In other words, you don't have status. You don't have power and wealth in the world. The nation of Israel had nothing to offer God, but he had everything to offer them. And he chose them so that he could express his life, express his love, express his mercy through them. Now, through Israel would come the Redeemer, the Savior of the world. But, of course, the nation of Israel turned away. And so God turned to the Gentiles. And God is now working through the body of Christ. All those who follow Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, he's working through us to accomplish his will on earth. And he is doing that by reaching out to people like us, drawing them into his family. He's choosing us to take the journey. And notice... How did God do this electing? It says, God shows you according to his foreknowledge. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this. It's a hugely controversial subject, a lot of different opinions. But without uh, reviewing all of the details of the controversies that surround the arguments that surround the, uh, the concepts of election or predestination, let me tell you that this word right here, foreknowledge, does not mean that God looked down through time and saw what you would choose, what you would do, and then God ratified your choice. does not mean that. This does not suggest that our choices are not free. The Bible tells us our choices are real, but God's choice is always first, always ultimate. Does that make sense? Foreknowledge, foreknowledge is actually synonymous with the words predestined, 
and foreordained means the same thing. It refers to God's plan to save people through his son, Jesus Christ, a plan he's had in place since eternity past. And here's what I want you to take from this. Even if you don't get how this works, even if you don't understand it, here's what Peter means for you to understand. Here's what the Bible always means for you to understand when you see this word. This truth ought to be a comfort to you. It means God will never cast you aside. Amen? It means your salvation is not based on you. Anybody want to say praise God right now for that? God has chosen you to be his child. It's his choice, so nothing can threaten you. And then think about this. It says according to the foreknowledge. Well, what's according to the foreknowledge of, of God? Well, just look at the grammar here. It's, it's that they are elect exiles in the dispersion. Uh, the foreknowledge of God here is that they are scattered among these regions. And what this means, and listen to this, is so everything about their lives, their status as exiles, their privileges as God people, where they live, what they are suffering, all part of God's plan. Does that speak to you today? And I would sum it up this way. It gets real personal. God chose my journey. You might want to write that down. God chose your journey. He planned it in his foreknowledge. And this is also, friend, supposed to give us comfort. We who find ourselves in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic in a nation tearing itself apart in economic distress and personal anxiety, knowing that God planned it all should bring us comfort. It's not an accident. I mean, do you know that everything happening now was planned according to the foreknowledge of God? You say, why would he do that? I answer, I don't know. In case you're wondering, let me just clear this up. I'm not God. Okay? I know some of you were in doubt about this, but uh, just in case, I don't want to you know, have any confusion out there. I don't know, but God knows. And it's, it's sort of like this illustration many of you have heard. It's like God is weaving this tapestry, and we're on the underside of the loom. And all we can see are these weird threads hanging down. We don't know what he's doing, and we can't see what's happening. But God is up there saying, wait until you see what I'm making. See, why? Why does God have you where you are right now? Why does God have you in that neighborhood? Why has God put you staying at home with your family? Yeah, some of us really want to know the answer to that question, right? Why is your job gone? See, all of this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And even if you don't understand it, you can take comfort in knowing that he knows. And again, do not miss, don't skip over the fact it says he is our Father. Right? One of the chief themes running through the letter of 1 Peter is that the church is a family. And so that tells us God has chosen us to take the journey, but not by ourselves. We are better together. We are stronger together. We are each part of the church, the family of God. And we're going to see many, many implications of this over the next few months. But I want to underline this right now. What Peter is talking about here is our identity. Identity is a huge concept in Peter. How do we understand our lives? How do we see ourselves? Who are we? Peter is trying to tell us that God is choosing us for this journey, and it has to do with our identity. And I'll just spell this out. One of the things that means practically is we find our identity based on who we are in God's eyes and who we are in God's family. Both those go together. 
You might want to write that down. We find our identity based on who we are in God's eyes and in God's family, not on who we are in the eyes of society or culture. How many of you are basing your idea on the latter and not the former? How many of you need to flip that and start basing your identity, how you see yourself, how you think of your life, who you are in terms of what God says about you, in terms of what it means to be located within the family of God? How many of you need to change the way you see who you are right now because you're evaluating yourself based on what the people around you say, based on what the culture around us says? This is what Peter is about. Listen to these verses from Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Uh, We're going to get there in a few weeks, but these are such wonderful verses. It's all about identity. Peter says here, but you are a chosen race. Say chosen race. A royal priesthood. Say royal priesthood. A holy nation. Say holy nation. A people for his own possession. Say a people for his own possession. You are all those things. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his what? Marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Say God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Say mercy. Do you see what God is telling us? Anybody want to say praise the Lord, amen, you know, hallelujah right now? Go ahead. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Some of you may have seen this just this week. It was in some news that um, I saw. Uh, There's a song uh, that we've we've sung here, I think, a couple of times. You've heard it on the radio forever by Lauren Daigle called You Say. And the reason it was in the news is this week it hit 100 straight weeks at number one on the charts that it's part of. And I want to just give you some of the lyrics in this word because it's all about identity. It says, she sings, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know. Who needs to know right now? You say I am love when I can't feel a thing. You say I am strong when I think I am weak. And you say I am held when I'm falling short. And when I don't belong, oh, you say I am yours. And I believe. Oh, I believe. I'll leave out the ooh part in there that you don't want me to do. I believe what you say of me. I believe. Do you believe? You've been chosen by God to be in his family. And so on this strange journey, living as an exile, will you find your identity right there, right there? Will you find your significance, find your acceptance in God and not this world? And friends, if God's chosen you to be his family, what does it matter if you have a little or a lot? If God has chosen you to be in his family, what does it matter if people are impressed with you or not? What does it matter if they reject you, if God accepts you? Peter says, God is calling us on a strange journey. We are elect exiles, so find your identity in God and in God's family. You know, I've always wanted to do this while I was preaching. I feel like a real preacher now. Um, Second thing, second truth, you can write this down. The purpose of the journey is holiness. So let me be really clear. God has chosen us for this journey not to find ourselves. That's not the point of life, okay? 
God has chosen us for this journey not to achieve success and not to experience comfort. God's purpose in our lives is holiness. We have been chosen, Peter says. This is from verse 2. Notice the phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit. We are chosen by means of the Holy Spirit's sanctification. In other words, the Spirit has reached down into our lives and he has made us holy. What does this mean? Well, this means that everything happening to you is not only according to God's foreknowledge, but everything that's happening to you is happening in the supernatural atmosphere, in the realm of the Holy Spirit's activity. And it's all about forming you, shaping you, making you into the image of Christ. Turning every circumstance, sorrow, hardship, sickness, joy, and pleasure, all these things into tools for the purifying work of the Spirit in your lives. That is what God is doing. And one of the things that I can say with authority that God is doing right now in your life is that he is purifying you. He is sanctifying you. He is making you more like Jesus. You see, if you're a Christ follower, then all of your life is part of the Spirit's activity to sanctify you and make you holy. Now, has anyone else discovered that this is a process, that it doesn't happen all at once, that sometimes that process seems to take a very long time in your life? In fact, let me just tell you right now, in case you don't know it yet, it's going to take the rest of your life. You're never going to get there until you're in glory. I'm going to give you a simple definition of what we're talking about here. Holiness is just becoming like Jesus. The more holy we are, the more we're like Jesus. The more we're like Jesus, the more holy we are. Make sense? And Peter wants us to know that holiness is the purpose for the journey. Listen to verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And again, let me ask you to think, what is your purpose in life? How do you see your purpose? In other words, what are you striving for? What are you trying to achieve with your life? Do you wake up every morning and find yourself thinking, how can I become more like Jesus today? How can I become more holy? Do you see that as your purpose? Peter's going to help us with that. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing that we learn. Holiness comes only through obedience on the journey. Peter tells us that the purpose of the Father's choosing and the purpose of the Spirit's sanctifying work is this. Listen, verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So everything is just being pointed towards some things. If you'll notice this and if you'd like to mark in your Bible, you might want to circle or underline the word for. It occurs two times. There are two fours in verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ. So Jesus wants, Peter says, to lead you to increasing obedience. And that means, friends, all the trials you're going through, everything that's happening to you, all designed to increase your obedience to Jesus. Let me ask you another question, another way. Do you get up every morning asking yourself today, how can I become more obedient to Jesus? That's what Peter's asking us. And again, Keep in mind what's being said in these two verses. God the Father planned it. The Spirit's activity empowers it. Jesus Christ receives your obedience. So for 
It means here's the purpose of all of this. It's for obedience. But also, Peter says, for sprinkling with his blood. Now, let me preface this one by saying how many of us, and this is a hand raised thing, I'm getting you ready, okay? How many of us, even though this is according to God's foreknowledge, even though the spirit of God is working in, a, in us, how many of us could look at our lives and say, man, I am just nailing it when it comes to obedience? I saw some hands go, oop, because you think I'm asking you always to raise your hand when I say that, right? And then sometimes you find out I shouldn't raise my hand. Because we fail all the time, amen? And so Peter is highlighting here this reality that even when we fail, there is the sprinkling with his blood. And this is a strange statement, right? Now, you're going to see as we go through this letter, Peter's going to use all kinds of images and metaphors that point back to the Old Testament. Well, what happened in the Old Testament? Of course, there would be sacrifices. Blood would be shed, and blood would be sprinkled on the altar, and that blood was meant to purify. That blood was symbolic. We know it was looking forward to Jesus' sacrifice ultimately. But the goal was that through the sacrifice of that animal, I would be purified from my sin. So here's what Peter's saying. One of the things that God wants you to remember is that your sin is paid for. Amen. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you and cleanse you of all sin. And that means even when you disobey, God will not leave you. God's calling us to obedience. But he also forgives us when we fail at obedience. And then don't, don't miss the last sentence of verse 2. Notice what Paul, uh, Peter says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. You might underline the word multiply because not just a little grace. It's a grace that grows. It's a grace that multiplies. It just keeps coming. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It never stops. He's telling us what we have access to here is this never-ending flow of God's grace and God's peace. So if you fail, if you have been failing. Do not give in to despair. Ask for his grace. God, our Father, loves to multiply grace and peace to his children. I also want to make the observation that one of the things this word obedience tells us is we don't get to choose the path of the journey. Not our choice. Our plans, our goals, our objective, not the point. Our first question must always be, what does Jesus want me to do? How can I obey Jesus today on this part of my journey? And again, I want to ask you, I've been asking it like this. Is this what you're, you're asking these days? Are you asking about obedience? Or have you been more concerned recently about asking God why he's let all of this happen to you? Peter's writing to people, I'll just be frank with you. Peter's writing to people who had it way, way tougher than we have it, even in 2020. And Peter says the point is obedience. He's real big on obedience. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, before we move to the last truth, I want us to kind of look back at the first three truths. And I want to make sure you see this. These first three truths are telling us in glorious, 
wonderful, beautiful terms that the entire Godhead, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are all intimately involved, overarching everything, all through everything, pervading everything. They are all leading us and guiding us on our journey. Isn't that great? Our journey is all about God in all of his fullness and all of his glory. And we should rejoice in that, knowing that our Father and his Son and his Holy Spirit, they're all part of everything happening to us, and they are loving us and taking care of us through it all. So here's the fourth truth. And it's kind of a conclusion. I'm actually in the order of the text going back to the beginning to make this, but I want to see how it all ties together. Here's the fourth truth. To make this journey, you must say, I'm an exile in this world. Say it right now. I'm an exile. You must say that. That must become part of your identity. You must see yourself this way because you won't make it unless you embrace your identity as an exile. Peter says our fundamental identity is elect exiles. In other words, we're chosen out of this world. And by definition, this means we're different. And we don't like to be different, right? How many of us spend so much of our time to figure out how we can fit in, how we won't stand out, how we'll look like other people and act like other people because we don't want them to think we're different. Peter says we're different at the most fundamental aspect of our lives. Now, just in case you're confused about this, I'm not talking about being weird because some of you are just weird, okay? That's not what this is about. But we are different in our identity, in our values, in who we are. And so to go back, Let me read the first verse again, and I'm going to read the NIV this time. It says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And again, this word exiles, the Greek word refers to people who reside in a place, but who stay there only for a brief time. They're strangers. They're temporary residents. Peter's going to use another word later on that means almost the same thing in some of our translations translated aliens you could translate it foreigners as well and this word that we're talking about here means someone who resides in a place without the legal protection and rights provided for citizens and I want you to think about this because when you live in a country you're not from you really kind of have three options and you may want to write these down and think about them the first option is you can be an immigrant And an immigrant is someone who seeks to make the new country their permanent home. They're not from here, but they want to be. And that's what a lot of Christians are doing with this world. They might say they're citizens of heaven, but they are living their lives, treating this world as if this is where they really want to live. They focus on their comfort here and now. They try to accumulate resources for living here and now. They worry about what they do and don't have here and now about what other people think about them here and now. They worry and focus on how they can have their best life here and now. Immigrants. Second option is to be a tourist. And a tourist is the opposite of immigrant. A tourist doesn't want to live here. They're just visiting. And so they don't form any real connections. They just huddle in their own groups where they speak their own language and eat their own food and hang with people just like them. And these are the Christians who don't care about political or social problems around them. These are the Christians who feel no connection to the cities where God has placed them. These are the Christians who are just waiting for God to rapture them out of this mess. That's all they care about. Now the third option, and I hope you get those first two options are not good ones. 
The third option is what Peter's talking about, and that's the option of being in exile. Again, an exile is someone whose home is somewhere else. But for a time, they must make their home in a new place, and so they invest in this new community. They form relationships where they are. They learn the culture where they live. But they don't want to get too attached because the whole time they're living here, they are longing for their true home. They are longing for the day when they go home. And Christ followers who live as exiles, they're not focused on accumulating a lot because their real home is somewhere else. They are satisfied with just enough to get by because their real treasure is someone else. It's sort of like uh, when you go to the airport and you're there and you notice in the airport they have these little shops that sell you things you need at the moment for ridiculously high prices, right? That's just designed to kind of keep you comfortable on your layover. Nothing more. You, you know what you never see in an airport? Shopping carts. Because no one goes there to load up, right? You don't go to the airport to shop. You buy just enough to get by because it's a temporary stop on the way to your true home. Peter is calling you to change your thinking about this world you live in. This world is not your true home. So don't get too attached. Don't be obsessed about what you do or don't have, what you do or don't experience. In fact, I'll just, I'm, I could be interpreted wrongly with this, but um, the whole concept of a bucket list is actually a kind of a pagan concept. And I'm not saying you, you, you can't make some things you'd like to do, but just think of it. What am I going to do before I kick the bucket? Because I better do it now because... No chances after that. Is that how a Christian thinks? No. There's a whole lot of things you're never going to get to do in this world. Guess what? Guess what? You got eternity to do them on a perfect new world with a perfect body. So do as much as you can. Enjoy the creation God has given to us, the experiences that he provides for us. But do not see them as ultimate because they're not. This is not your home. Don't let it bother you if you don't get to do some things here. Let it bother you if you're not being conformed to the image of Christ. And don't let it bother you that everybody thinks you're different. They should. You belong to a different kingdom. You live under a different set of values. Christians are supposed to seem strange to the people around them. Let me just kind of wrap this up with a couple of implications of being an exile, just by reading some verses that you can kind of go to. And I would encourage you, uh, this is not a long um, uh, letter. I believe it's 105 verses. I didn't write this down, so I may not get it exactly right. I don't want any emails if it was more or less verses than that, but you get the point. Uh, the average reader can probably read the whole letter in 30 minutes. There is no reason why you shouldn't be reading 1 Peter every week during this study and just kind of letting it soak in. But here's some verses that tell us what it means to be in exile. 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. You guys, uh, you know those memes um, and different things that say they just had one job. You had one job, right? And then it shows somebody totally missing 
what their job was. You know what I'm talking about? Just in case, I want to make sure you're still here. Who's, who's not asleep? You know what I'm talking about. Raise your hands. Okay. So here's the thing. You have one job. Fear God. Live for an audience of one. That's your job. That's what Peter's saying. And then 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In other words, exiles do not try to live like everyone around them. They shouldn't want to because they've embraced their identity as exiles. And they glory in having a father who chose them and put them in a forever family. And they know it is always better to live the way God calls them to live not the way they used to live. 1 Peter 3, 4, verses 3 and 4 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, Peter's going to show us how embracing our identity means accepting our difference and accepting the world's rejection. You don't fit in. You don't belong. You're part of a different kingdom. Sometimes that difference leads to hostility, sometimes rejection, and sometimes even to persecution. And then 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks ahead. But elect exiles who know they don't belong, who think, know they have a different home, they will expect suffering in this world because they know it is part of the journey. So what does, what does looking at our strange journey mean for all of us? I want to sum it up in this one sentence. You can write this down. Know who you are so you know how to live. Know who you are so you know how to live. A biblical scholar named Thomas Schreiner puts it like this. Those who understand themselves as God's elect have the ammunition to resist the norms and culture of the society they inhabit. And I'm going to tell you today, if you haven't gotten it yet, if you haven't heard it yet, if you're going to make it as a Christ follower in the Bay Area, you need to learn to live as an exile in a society that sees you now, friends, listen to me, that sees you as irrelevant at best and as a threat at worst. That's where we're living. If you go to church regularly, you give money away to God's mission, hold to the truths clearly taught in God's word, pray to Jesus, and believe that Jesus is the only way to eternal life, many people will say to you, there's something wrong with you. And some of them will say, as some people already are saying, that you're a threat, and you must be marginalized, and you must be silenced. See, like the first Christ followers who first read 1 Peter, the opposition we are facing today has not yet metastasized into outright overt persecution. But it may one day. And I'm asking you right now, if it does, will you be ready? You can be, listen to me, you can be if you know who you are. Do you know who you are? Let me tell you who you are. You're in exile, but not just any exile. You are God's exile. You are God's chosen exile. 
You are the father's son or daughter, deeply loved. That's who you are. You know, I'm looking forward to exploring 1 Peter with you. And I'm trusting that God will change our lives as we open ourselves up to his word. Will you join me in that prayer, in that longing? Let's bow our heads.